May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are a few things that can destroy the life of a family, like strife regarding the inheritance. Whenever one generation passes on its blessings to the next, it's often the case that not everyone feels equally blessed, or at least not blessed in the way they had expected to and the way they believe that they were entitled to. Not everyone feels as though they've been equally treated. I don't know if I'm speaking of something that you've experienced in your family. Perhaps you have. At that moment, deep grievances can be born. Brothers and sisters can be torn apart. And the reality is that those grievances don't always heal. Isaac has passed on his inheritance, and it looks as though his family is the next in this long line of families to be torn apart. In verse 41 of chapter 27, we read that Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I'll kill my brother Jacob. Esau's just biding his time. He's waiting until his dad's died so that his dad doesn't have to see the murder that he'll commit, murdering his own brother, whom he blames for stealing his inheritance. Now, we learned last week that Rebecca in this family seems to be an endlessly resourceful woman. She always seems to be one step ahead of the game, and the same is true again here just now. Somehow she learns about Esau's anger, and immediately she calls her son, her favorite son, Jacob, to her, and she makes arrangements for him Arrangements that might well be the saving of his life. She tells him that he's to leave the family home to go to her brother Laban in Haran. And she'll call him back once Esau's anger is cooled. That really was the fifth. We noticed this last week that there's a series of seven dialogues in this family. It's always two people talking at any one time. Never a sense that they're all together in one place. That, That meeting of Rebecca and Jacob was the fifth of the seven. And then the sixth, we have Rebecca and Isaac. It takes till the sixth of these dialogues before the husband and wife finally get to talk. It gives us an idea of the breakdown that there's been in this marriage, the the lack of communication that there is between this husband and wife. And whenever they finally do get to be in the same place and get to be talking, it's a very unhealthy interaction. Rebecca resorts to emotional manipulation. Look at her language. I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life won't be worth living. Rebecca doesn't want her son to to leave the family home as a fugitive. She wants him to leave with his father's backing. And she wants to relate all of this to Isaac so that Isaac, in the end, will think it's all his own idea. I'm sure she's not the first uh, wife 
or, or even the first husband who's thought, well, I might be able to steer the way things work out in our household. She's playing Isaac here like a puppet on a string. So in the seventh and the final dialogue, we find Isaac saying exactly the stuff that Rebecca has just planted in his mind. In the opening verses of chapter 28, Isaac calls Jacob to him and he blesses him. Now remember, by this time he knows that his son has deceived him. And that surely must have been a huge issue between the two of them. But somehow just now Isaac looks past all of that. Everything that Isaac's been getting wrong, he gets right at just this moment. Here we see Isaac at his best. We've said a few times in the last few weeks that Isaac's a very passive character. He gives no leadership in his family. Well, here, just now, he does. For once, he gives his son a strong lead. He commands Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite woman. He sends him, as Rebecca has suggested, he sends him to Paddan Aram. And in a sense, he's he's sending Jacob along the same route of faith that Abraham, his father, had once sent a servant on his behalf. Do you remember that? How Abraham sent a servant to go and to to find a wife for Isaac, that he wouldn't marry one of these Canaanites around him. Finally, Isaac is walking in faith and following in Abraham's footsteps. Finally as well, Isaac gets it right regarding the blessing. This time, knowing which of his sons stands before him. He says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. Isaac's got it right with regard to leadership. He's got it right with regard to the blessing. And he, he goes on to make an explicit connection between this blessing that he's passing on to his son and the blessing that God gave to Abraham. He says, may God give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. There's a lovely sense of everything actually settling down here. After all the madness and the chaos, the deception and the scheming of chapter 27, the blessing of Abraham's fallen on Jacob, as God had always intended that it would. And Isaac's confirming that just now. Rebecca is sending her son to Paddan Aram. She doesn't know what she's sending her son to. Her son won't return for 20 years. By that time, she'll be dead. This is the last time that Rebecca will see her son, Jacob. The last time that she'll hear his voice. I want to slow down for a second in our study of the life of Jacob and think with you for a moment about Jacob's parents. This is a good point at which to think about them because actually it's the last time that either of them will play any significant role in the narrative. What about Rebecca? What should we make of Jacob's mother, Rebecca? Well, 
In the end, the biblical assessment of Rebecca's life isn't a positive one. She's presented throughout as a schemer, as a manipulator. Now, this this needs a wee bit of thought. God is sovereign, and God's will is done. The blessing is passed on to Jacob. And somehow, Rebecca plays her part in that. But never once is Rebecca commended for her deception, her scheming, her going against her husband, her secrecy. Never once is there a hint that God's blessing rests on that kind of behavior. Rebecca loses contact here with both of her sons. And she dies even without so much as another mention in the biblical account. That, in the way of the biblical writer, is one way of showing us that she's not a woman of great faith. What about Isaac? What do we make of him? Well, the biblical assessment of his life isn't a positive one either. We've already noticed that in contrast with Abraham, who goes before him, and Jacob, who comes after him, Isaac's life is squeezed just into a very short couple of chapters in the biblical account. Despite his great heritage, being the the father of Abraham, the father of all who have faith, Isaac turns out to be a weak and an essential man. He's not all bad. Occasionally he acts in faith, and we see that here in these verses we've just looked at. But his life isn't marked out like Abraham's by, by a growing faith, a sense that God's place in his life is, is becoming larger, that he's maturing as a man of God. There's no sense of that with Isaac. There's no sense of that as there will be in the life of Jacob. Isaac's going to live on for many more years, but again, without any further mention in the biblical narrative. Jacob's parents, it seems, are both deeply flawed. Isn't it important that we're honest about our parents? Isn't that important? God's word commands us to honor our parents, but it never once asks us to be unrealistic about them. Jacob's home wasn't a perfect place for a young man to grow up in the faith. God's word makes that very, very clear. My home wasn't perfect. Neither was yours. I think there's a wonderful encouragement for us here, each one of us in this Jacob story, no matter what kind of a home we've grown up in, no matter how badly our our parents have failed to live the life of faith before us, if they have failed, we're not prisoners to that situation. We are not prisoners of faith. The lack of faith in Jacob's parents doesn't prevent him in his own good time from growing and growing and growing as a man of faith. You know, the psychologists, they have it right. They'll tell you that we are influenced by our parents. We are 
you better believe that, that we're shaped substantially by, by what happens in our homes. That's true. But we're not trapped. We're not prisoners of fate. Whatever our upbringing has been, the grace of God can reach us. Whatever our family experiences we have had, God can reach us and, and draw us to Jesus and make us men and women of growing faith. Perhaps that can be a real encouragement to you tonight uh, as we have looked at the life of Jacob together. There's one last passing insight into Jacob's troubled family in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 28. It's Esau. Esau doesn't come across very strongly in these verses. He's, he's pretty slow on the uptake for a start. He finally works out that Canaanite women aren't what God wants for him. That, that's been a theme throughout the last few chapters. But for Esau, it seems that finally dawns on him. To me, Esau, whenever he discovers that 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 doesn't please God or please his father, he he rushes out and does something else. He thinks, oh, I'll just fix it. So he rushes out and marries the daughter of Ishmael. Now, if you remember, Ishmael is a son of Abraham, but he's a son outside of the promise. So again, Esau has acted in ways that keep him outside of the promises of God. To me, Esau seems like a person who occasionally tries to please God. Once in a while it dawns on him that he's not living in God's will, so he'll try something to to bring him back into God's will. But he does that sporadically without ever really submitting himself to God's plans. It's a sort of a notion that I can dip into this life with God, that I can do certain things at certain times to please him. Esau ends up here a pretty tragic figure. And so does anybody who tries to follow in his footsteps to seek to please God while always living on their own terms. Our our focus from here on in falls almost exclusively on Jacob. For a few weeks, a a few chapters in God's word, he's going to be at the center of everything. Whenever Jacob leaves his family home in Beersheba, he starts a whole new chapter in his life. And keep an eye out because Jacob's transformation is about to begin. As so often, that transformation begins in very, very difficult circumstances. And for Jacob, it's going to begin on this journey from Beersheba, his family home, to Haram, to where his, his uncle lives. Think about this journey he's making. He's leaving behind his past, his family, but he has to go because his brother's going to kill him if he doesn't. He's heading off to a future which he has no idea what to expect, to people he doesn't know. He's heading off into uncertainty. This is a journey. It's almost like it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. He's no idea what to expect and a lot to be fearful about. 
That journey, by the way, from Beersheba to Haran, it's about 500 miles, demanding by any standards, but particularly if you're making it under the Middle Eastern sun, uh, your transport is a camel, and you have no human company. With each passing day, Jacob's putting more and more distance between the place that he loves and himself, and he's drawing closer to an uncertain future. Well, in verse 11, we read of one occasion where he stops for the night. (coughs) Now, it's impossible for him to travel at night time. He's exhausted in any case, so he tethers his camel to a rock and he lies down beside it. He uses a flat stone for his pillow. He falls asleep. But then he dreams. He dreams of a long stone flight of stairs beginning up in heaven and coming down, 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 right beside where he's lying. As his mind's eye becomes accustomed to the light, he sees God's angels are are descending and descending on this stone staircase. And more than that, He sees God. Friends, this is incredible. This this is awesome to use a word that's often misused. This is a moment for awe. Jacob's dream here is a brilliant insight into the reality of the life of faith. You see, there is there's a constant traffic between heaven and earth. Earth, this earth that we live on is a place of possibility because God is constantly in contact with us here. God's never cut himself off from this earth and he never will. Sometimes we're aware of his presence like Jacob was here. Often we're not. But he's here Nevertheless, do you understand that what Jacob saw in that dream was reality? It's as he dreamed that he saw the world as it really is. A place where God is with us and beside us. Friends, that's not how modern people see it. In one of his last poems before his death, W.B. Yeats was looking back on his life and looking back over the years he concluded wistfully now that my ladder is gone I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart for Yeats for many of his contemporaries in the 20th and now 21st century their ladder is gone The link between heaven and earth is broken. Their lost, their impoverished existence is the one of secular disbelief. There is no God. Or as Nietzsche said, God is dead. Paul describes their state in his letter to the Ephesians. They're without hope and without God in the world. 
Friends, that's how your neighbors live. That's how the people in the office tomorrow morning view their life. A life without God. There is no ladder to heaven. Friends, the awareness of God's presence is no small thing in our lives. It changes everything for us. God's presence is like the melody line running right through Scripture. We're told from the very start that God wants to be with his people. In Eden, God walks with Adam and Eve. Sometime later, God, God gives physical shape to his presence among his people. It's the tabernacle that's the symbol that God is present with his people. When their wandering days are over, it becomes a building, the temple in Jerusalem. All of these previous temples, they find their fulfillment in Christ. Did you know that? Jesus is the temple. Do you remember what he said when he was standing in the temple in Jerusalem one day? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about bricks and mortar. He wasn't talking about the the building there, Herod's temple. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the time he'd be crucified, when he would die, and when he'd rise again three days later. Destroy this temple, and three days later, I'll raise it up. Jesus was the presence of God on earth Do you know how God is present on earth today? Do you know? It's here. It's in the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God's Holy Spirit on earth today. Do you remember we noticed this a few months ago in Ephesians? In chapter 2, Paul says, In Christ we're being built together to become a dwelling in which Christ dwells by his Spirit. Friends, if you're looking for the presence of God in the world today, don't go to a mountaintop. Don't go to a Caribbean island. Don't go to a Trappist monastery. Come and be anywhere where there's a community of the people of Jesus Christ. This is where God lives. Friends, would you allow God to etch that on your mind this evening? This image of a ladder from heaven to earth that rests beside us this, this image of God's presence with us, would you allow God to impress that on your heart? No matter how dark or how desperate your situation this evening, like Jacob, God's presence is at hand with you. Let's move on quickly and see what happens in this encounter of God with Jacob. God not only appears to him, but he speaks to him. As far as I can tell, this is the first time that we're aware of God speaking to Jacob. 
The only person that Jacob's ever listened to so far is his mum. And now he's listening to God. God says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abram, the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. We sing, don't we, about God's amazing grace and we do it readily enough. But do we recognize it when we see an incident of it? This is incredible. Remember who Jacob is. He's a guy who's running from his own home because his brother wants to kill him because he's a crook. That's who Jacob is at this point in his life. God's grace here is totally unexpected. Jacob's no pilgrim on a journey looking for God. He's a crook. And yet God in his grace comes to him, meets him, accompanied with all his angels, and surprises him in this wonderful way. And God's grace here is perfect. What would you expect God to say to Jacob just now? What would the God in your mind say? Well, if I'm honest, I think the God in my mind would say, Jacob, what have you been playing at? I mean, what way was that to treat your brother, to treat your father, but not our God, not the gracious and loving God? Here, there's, there's no sense of him telling Jacob off. There's no demand that he do better before he receives the blessing. No, what we have here is just a long stream of blessings. Do you see these blessings? They stretch back in time. They say, see those blessings I gave Abraham? Well, I'm going to give them to you, and I'm going to give them to your people. They stretch into the past and way into the distant future, when his descendants would be like the dust of the earth. The blessings stretch from the place where he's lying to the four corners of the compass, east and west, north and south. The blessings stretch from from Jacob's own person to all the peoples of the earth. Could this blessing have been any bigger? Could it have been more comprehensive? It's amazing, this grace of God. But there's more about what God says to Jacob here. God not only gives him these great, great promises, he adds a new promise to the promises of Abraham. And it's one that's tailored to fit perfectly Jacob now. Look at verse 15. To this young man traveling all alone to an uncertain future, God says, I'm with you. And I'll watch over you wherever you go. To a young man leaving his home, the home he loves and the family he loves, God says, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back to this land. 
and to a young man whom you wouldn't trust as far as you can throw, God promises, I'll keep my promise. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Friends, this is a key moment in the life of Jacob. Will he follow in the footsteps of his fathers and become a man of faith? Or will he let the blessing pass him by? It's the same question that all children growing up in in families of faith one day have to come to terms with. When our children are given to us, we baptize them. This is our God-ordained way of welcoming them into the family of faith. And then we fulfill our promises to God. We bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as the old liturgy put it. We pray for them, that they'll grow in the faith, that they'll respond for themselves to the saving work of Jesus Christ, and that they'll become men and women of faith, that their baptism will one day be confirmed in them when they make a public profession of faith. That's what we long for. But as parents, we stand back. Because there must always be a moment when our children accept for themselves the faith of their fathers. What about Jacob? What's he going to do at this crucial moment. Well, I think at this point, Jacob adopts the faith of his fathers. Look at his response in verse 26. When he awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. He seems to have realized the enormity of what was going on here. We read that he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And we read that early the next morning, he took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. The pillar is a memorial. He's saying, I don't want to forget this. Not ever. I don't want to forget this meeting with God. The pouring the oil over it is a a consecrating. He's saying this was a holy moment in my life, a special time with God. And then we read in verse 19 that he renamed the place. He called it Bethel, house of God. There's a bit of Hebrew for you. Beth always means house. Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, means house of bread. Bethel, simply house of God. Lots of churches have taken that name since. Do you know any? Do you know any congregations who have taken the name Bethel? Well, the truth is that any community of Christ's people is a Bethel. It becomes a place that's the house of God. I said a moment ago that this appears to me to be the point where Jacob adopts the faith of his father's We see that more clearly in the remaining verses. Look at verses 20 to 22. Jacob made a vow saying, 
If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. Notice how Jacob addresses God compared to chapter 27. Look back to chapter 27, verse 20. He speaks to his own father and he says, The Lord, your God, gave me success. God is Isaac's God. But at this point, he's not yet the God of Jacob. But now, after this vision, after hearing God's promises, Jacob's willing to commit himself. If you keep these promises, then the Lord will be my God. Friend, that's the point we all need to come to. When the God of our fathers, the God of our friends, the God of the church community that we belong to, when that God is no longer your God or or their God, but but our God and, and my God. The biblical narrative in its presentation of Jacob at this point couldn't be more authentic. On the one hand, Jacob's been changed. God has become his God. And we all can look back on a moment in our lives when that occurred for us, when God became our God. Those of us who are in Christ can remember that time. But Jacob's not changed entirely. He doesn't suddenly cease to be Jacob and become some sort of super saint. No, even in his conversion... We see the old Jacob at work. It's it's brilliant to see it. Do you notice here how the same man who, who bought and sold his brother is now wheeling and dealing with God? Have a look at it. God, if you keep your promises, I'll make you my God. If you'll be with me and watch over me, If you'll give me food and clothes, if you return me safely to my father's house, do you see it? Again, Jacob's driving a bargain. He won't commit himself to God for nothing. He wants to be sure that God will keep his side of the deal. As we close just now, I want us to close with this reminder that none of us comes to God with clean hands. We like to think that that moment of our our conversion or whatever we want to call it, that that was us at our best. That was us coming to God spiritually alive and, and pure. But the truth is that even then our motives aren't always good. Our ways aren't pure. And yet, here we see that God in his amazing grace appears to us. He shows us a ladder that stretches down from heaven. He shows us Jesus, his own son. Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father except through me. God tells us at that moment 
that we can know him, that we can live forever in his presence. He gives us his spirit and he makes it clear to us that from that point on, our life, our whole life can be lived in Bethel. The very house of God. The place where God dwells. Have you ever heard the like of it? Friends, Jacob is still crooked. And he will be for some time yet. There's still much to be done in his life. But he's met with God. He's up and running in the life of faith. Let's pray.